found out that the pie, the baby, and the miniature horse were all together in... Wait, wait. Uh, Asher, the light's on. Shit. I can't finish that. I can't finish it. Because we're recording in B. This is very, very sensitive information. Uh-oh. Yeah. So, uh, anyway. Welcome, everybody, to Front Row Perspectives. Uh, I'm David Slash Asher. Join me tonight is, or today, whichever, uh, is, of course, Michael. hey And Will Hi. Slash Kage. Yay! So, tonight we're going to be talking, because it's actually fairly re uh, relevant for our, when this is recorded, is game pricing. Um, and the reason why is that uh, there was some recent news that was actually touched upon by some major game news articles uh, stating that uh, a good chunk of companies were talking about possibly increasing the pricing, uh, the base price of AAA titles uh, for the next-gen consoles, essentially the Xbox Series X and, of course, um, PS5. Yeah. And the proposal was upgrading from the current standard of $60 per game for a AAA title to $70 for a AAA title. And the, to the topic of increasing game pricing has always been around, um, but it's always been kind of shot down. Mostly because of the fact that uh, I'm trying to look up just to make sure when the $60 game pricing was enacted, but I'm pretty sure that was back roughly in the PS2 era. Um, that sounds right. Because a um, the stand uh, like to uh, the standard was uh, the base game was going to be. $60, and A, since most games during that time didn't have anything like DLC, you'd have expansions, yes, but um, the game would come out, you'd buy the game, those brand spanking new copies, depending on how much they sold, uh, how many were sold, could pay back the budget for the game. No problem. Plus a nice, tidy little profit margin. Nice profit margin, depend uh, or large mar uh, profit margin, depending on how many were sold. That's, of course, the standard. Um, but then when you started getting into much more detailed, in-depth uh, games and started getting stuff like the PS3 and 360, the development costs went up more because you're you're spending more time to make the assets, the engine, so on and so forth to make a game which that's more resources that you have to pay employees in order to work on the project which if you're still stuck at a $60 game, you have to sell more units or come up with another way of earning back extra money. Uh, to cover the cost of development. Now, 
Uh, Michael here uh, looked up roughly what a $60 game would cost nowadays due to inflation from mm. 2005. And this is, of course, the American dollar. And, and, tra and if we were to take a, a game in 2005 that cost 60 bucks, that same $60 in 2020 dollars would be actually 80 bucks. So there's an argument based around inflation to be made that, okay, yeah, sure. That it could be considered financially feasible to say, well, the value of the dollar has, uh, has changed in such a way that $60 in 20, uh, 2005 money is not the same as $60 in 2020 money. And especially with rising costs, there is that there is reason to increase the price accordingly. Right. Yeah. But of course, that's only one view because the other view is, okay, well, let's take a look at, let, let's take a look at, say, a major, a major game publisher and see what their, uh, what their net is, what their net revenue is. And if, if the, how much they're exceeding by, and if they're making huge uh, sales, well, maybe that's an argument against them needing to do so. But yeah. at the same time, a company's in business for the sake of making money. So, of course, they're going to try and do that. Yeah. Um, and admittedly, some of the answers that the industry has come up with for making up those costs, we as players have tolerated... Uh, uh, have, One low. Yeah. Ranged from tolerated to outright rebelled against that's what i was yep. trying to say we're looking at you ea uh, so loot boxes that's the one we rebelled against most uh so the industry came uh, when digital distribution started becoming a lot more prevalent and i i believe we did talk about digital distribution in an earlier episode was the fact that you could now include downloadable content DLC mm -hmm. and uh, usually DLC can be anywhere from oh this is what the team started working on after they finished the main game but couldn't put it on the copy of the disc that got sent out which is usually what we refer to as day one DLC actually no uh, I was actually talking about DLC that usually comes like three to six weeks later oh okay so you're talking about like the actual quote unquote expansion DLC Yes, those types. Okay. Um, day one DLC is the uh, one of the standard EA models, which pisses me off, is that now, admittedly, some of the DLC, uh, all, uh, these are just examples. These aren't always true because sometimes there are there is content that they wanted to put in the game and they finished it before it went live, but they couldn't put it on the disc. Because, A, usually when a game goes gold, it gets sent out like two to three months beforehand because they have to make a master disc for the printers, mm -hmm. for physical copies. And sometimes that DLC does get put up as a day one DLC. Uh, or vice versa, so this is content that was planned. This is the standard EA model is planned content that actively gets cut from the gold copy of the game so that they could release it as DLC. AKA day one DLC. 
most of on disc DLC is what I was trying to say. This is um, usually on disc DLC or day one DLC. Some ooh. company I've encountered somewhere. Some companies have actually it's been in the game unfinished, as in AKA broken, but they release it like two to three weeks later, finished. Ugh. So that's why I say like. The, uh, that practice, that practice is, um, for some game companies, the one we mostly see this on is, of course, E-fucking-A. Which we know like E. Uh, that's because they do some really shitty business practices. Of course. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not the episode to talk about. At least not yet. Yeah, no, I, I'm pretty sure we still have an entire episode <laughs> devoted to them. Oh, yeah. Um, and then other options, uh, of course, for DLC is uh, what me and Michael and probably Will would call Glamour DLC or mm -hmm. basically cosmetic DLC. Mm -hmm. Stuff that it doesn't affect the game at all. And it is just fun stuff to have that you can put your characters in. Yeah. Um, or stuff that stuff that has it may have an, an in-game impact, but it is not exclusive to or it is comparable in power to what's already there. Yeah. Like as a as a random example, um, I don't know if this was I, I know this is something that was kicked around. I don't know if this is something that actually happened, but with 7R um having alternate slash different slash uh uh, not really upgraded, but alternate slash different summon materials, which uh, some of them were. Um, like there was the pre-ordered DLC for one. There were a couple of random little ones, but where hmm. you, it's it's not OP, and in fact, in many cases, it was actually underpowered, um, or it's on par, uh, and it it exists purely to give you another option visually. But it doesn't break the game in any way, by any stretch. Yeah. Um, admittedly, like, the first instance uh, of this game is, weirdly enough, not EA, but Bethesda, of all people. <laughs> Bethesda has fallen from grace. Uh, that's because you wouldn't know what it was. Hmm. Horse armor for Oblivion. Oh, yeah, I remember that. I don't actually that's funny okay uh to explain uh bethesda when uh decided like when they were putting the game up on steam that they'd include include paid for content uh that you could purchase and it was stuff like a three dollar cosmetic it didn't affect anything with the horse itself it just you could equip it on your horse and it was $3, and gamers literally outraged at the concept of $3 for just horse armor. And nowadays you see some guys going like, oh, I'm going to spend 50 bucks on these 20-odd pieces of glass... 20-odd uh, uh, pieces... Uh, no, not 20. Five pieces of... Are of like special skins for Try my gold press platinum. 
essentially like spending 50 bucks for five pieces of dresses for a character in a game that they played. Let's say freaking Overwatch. Dresses in Overwatch. Yeah, I think there's one character that wears a dress. At least one. Horrible example, but you get the concept. That A, nowadays, it's people are okay with the concept of getting glamour items. Mm-hmm. Now, the most recent and the most hated is I'm going to refer to it as two different mechanics because it actually started in the mobile dep- uh, in the mobile gaming and then spread to mainstream gaming and that is gotcha slash loot box. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're wondering why I use the term gotcha for this, uh, I I may have explained on an earlier episode, but the whole uh, the term gotcha actually comes from uh, the Japanese onomatopoeia for one of those capsule vending machines is that it makes a gotcha gotcha whenever you turn the crank. Gotcha gotcha. Gotcha, gotcha. And so when mobile games made, oh, hey, you can spend premium currency, a.k.a. currency that you uh, could could earn in-game or pay uh, pay real money to turn into to essentially get uh, the, to get the quotations waifus or husbandos in the game, it got turn- uh, and because those are set up in a mechanic that you don't know what you're getting, Japanese uh, gamers will refer to it as a gotcha. Gotcha, gotcha. Now, when it came to stateside, they the term changed because of the factor that, well, we dirty-ass Americans don't know Japanese automatopias. Uh, so we were like, okay, so it's a box. It's filled with loot. Loot box. Actually, I'm not even sure who termed the coin loot box. That's the term. You probably should have looked up before you talked about it. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, loot box. So while he's looking that up, essentially, and this, is, this has become something of a hot button because uh, loot boxes and gotcha and however you want to term it, uh, can vary from anywhere from glamour, uh, from being purely cosmetic in nature, to having, in some cases, uh, either, you know, a maybe a new character or a new power set to vary the game, or even uh, equipment that, compared to what else is available, is, quite frankly, overpowered. Uh, and I think I found it. Okay. Team Fortress 2. Hmm. With their loot crates. So not loot boxes, but loot crates. Well, a crate is a type of box, so. Yeah, I was gonna say that is a little six of one. Um, and Millie, looking at this, uh, this is actually a little bit older than uh, than video gaming because they mentioned the whole old booster pack from tcgs or ccgs mm-hmm. or even before that technic well before similar time 
because technically you can also put that same uh, argument on sports cards because it's the same Mm -hmm. and this ties into something that we'll cover in a different degree elsewhere but this ties uh, the whole concept behind whether it be loot boxes uh tcg ccg sports cards what have you uh ties into uh, a certain uh philosophical um what's the term you i want to use but philosophical phenomena i guess uh known as the gambler's fallacy yeah um that that will get into various other things like uh game theory not the show but actual game theory game theory um is the fact that uh, the whole uh, ga- uh, gambler's bit is that uh, this is why we as gamers start rebelling against freaking loot boxes is because of the fact that a it we're talking about like major games mm-hmm. uh, probably the two biggest ones that people point towards are of course Overwatch and Battlefront 2 Mm-hmm. is because the fact is that a you're basically yeah you'd pay yeah, you could pay real money and then get uh like for overwatch it was mostly cosmetic stuff like uh paint uh paints skins and what was one of the other options that's all i can think of overwatch probably emotes emotes yes Emo skin. So, with Overwatch, it was kind of like, eh, like you you earn stuff to get loot boxes, but you can also pay real money. So people weren't too um, rabid about it. Rabid about it. They were a little and bit. That, I was gonna, I was just gonna jump in, and the same the same goes as well for uh, I'm sure plenty of other games, but League of Legends is another one that jumps to mind where. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that you can get through loot boxes, and those boxes are you can get uh, through in-game currency as well as through buying currency. Yeah. So, a lot of people overlooked it because a, um, I'm going to use the term for uh, from the gotchas is people could wail for the stuff that they wanted for. To explain what a whale is, it is somebody that. Uh, essentially will pay lots of money to get one specific item from a loot box or a gotcha. The challenge there is, and this is where Gambler's Fallacy comes into play, the challenge there is, is that there is a there is a very visible fallacy uh, behind anything with an odds-based system of being able to beat the odds by simply flooding the system with uh, your entries. Yes. So, for example, let's say you have well, let's use let's use Final Fantasy fourteen and the and Jumbo Cactopod. Ah, uh, yes. So you have ten thousand. It's basically for those who don't play fourteen, which is probably most of the two people listening. Uh, that essentially with fourteen, you have Jumbo Cactopod, which is a Powerball style type of thing. You have a you buy a ticket for the drawing, or actually up to three tickets a week for the drawing, uh, and with each ticket being a different permutation of four different numbers. So you have 
for each ticket you buy, you have a one in 10,000 chance. Now in Jumbo Capot, you get to control what the numbers are on each of those three tickets, just like with, say, Powerball. Or you but, could ran, uh, run ran, uh, Rando if you're... Yeah, you, or you can run Rando. Uh, so in reality, at that point, you have a three in 10,000 chance at the big payout. And if your last digit is different, you have a three in 10 chance of some kind of payout above the consolation prize. So not terrible, but that was also set up to not be a guaranteed drain. It's just set up to be a guaranteed reward, yeah. at least nowadays. Basically, Originally, even if you... it was set up as a guaranteed drain, but that's another story. Yeah. And so the factor is that uh, with Overwatch, it didn't really, uh, Overwatch or League of Legends, it really didn't matter. Well, sorry, and let me, I just want to finish that thought real quick, and then we can move on to uh, Battlefront the 2. in the room. Right. Yeah. Uh, so the other, the other catch with uh, Gambler's Fallacy, though, is with something like a loot box, you have, say you have three loot tables. You have a common, an uncommon, and a rare, or maybe even four, because there might be a legendary. Yeah. So of those loot tables, let's say you have something on the legendary table that you are just dying to get. And so it has you look a... at... Sorry? And you have a 0.3% chance of getting it. Well, so here's the catch. So the way that it works when it rolls the randomizer is, and this is all done in formulas behind the scenes, so I'm just going to throw random numbers on the table and they're not going to stick anywhere. But let's say, for example, you have a loot box that is going to give you three prizes every time you open it. It is guaranteed to have one prize at least uncommon. So we'll, we'll assign that slot first. So that slot would have like a 70% chance of uncommon, a 25% chance of rare, and a 5% chance of legendary. Hmm. The other two slots will have like a 70% chance of common, a 20% chance of uncommon, an 8% chance of rare, and a 2% chance of legendary. Now, of those values, you then have to look at, okay, well, what all are we going to shove into this loot crate? So we have, we'll say, 100 different things on the common table. It's actually probably more, but we'll say that. Yeah. Uh, got some common emotes. We'll have some common uh, art or some common clothing. We'll have a couple of cool little things that people might use. If we're in League of Legends, we'll have a couple of ward skins in there and a couple of summoner icons in there. That's your common table. Uh, uncommon may be, you know, another 50 things. Uh, and they're all a little bit cooler, a little bit more prestige but they're not, they're still, you know, pretty basic. And then you've got the rare table and you've got, let's say, 30 things on there. And then you've got the legendary table and we've got, like, say, 20 things on there. So at that point, you now have that 5% chance on that first slot times a 5% chance of getting the correct one, presuming all 20 are weighted evenly, which they rarely are. Because yeah. the one you really want on that table also only has like a 1% chance of showing up. So yeah. at that point, you're actually looking at a 0.05% chance of it showing up in that one slot. So. so here's the other problem, though, with Gambler's Fallacy. Because Gambler's Fallacy says, oh, it's a 0.05 chance? 
Okay, so that means out of every 2,000 crates that I purchase, I'm going to get that. So let me plant down and get 2,000 crates. Congratulations, you didn't get it. Or conversely, you've gotten 15 of them. Yeah, because the problem is, is that the logic that goes in the gambler's fallacy, let's let's even scroll it back. Let's just yeah. save the 5% on the slot. So the logic that people go into, and this is where gambler's fallacy comes from, is one of two things. A, I buy 20, that guarantees me one purple, one legendary. That's not necessarily true, because that's not how odds work, because each box is its own individual chance. Each box is its own roll of a die. You can roll a 20-sided die 20 times. There's no guarantee you're going to get one each of 1 through 20. In fact, you can pretty well guarantee you're not. Yeah. Uh, the other side of Gambler's Fallacy is the uh, I'm hot, I'm cold theory, where you buy, you get one, and you manage to get two legendaries out of your first box. You are amazing. You're having a great day. You buy another one, three, uh, two commons and an uncommon. Okay, well, that was a fluke. You buy another one, two commons, uncommon. Well, it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen eventually. You keep buying and buying and buying because you know that you can do it because you already did it. So, therefore, it, it's just a matter of time. It's a matter of time. And before you know it, $200 down the drain, boom. Yeah. So Or, I'm, or you keep going, you keep going because you're doing amazing. And then all of a sudden, you're... You, your luck fails, and you're and you're suddenly no longer winning. You're suddenly losing. Yeah, and the, as a heads up for Gotcha Games, the the mobile games with the waifus or the husbandos, mm-hmm. two hundred dollars is a drop in the bucket compared to some people's whaling. Yeah, no. So if people go like, "Oh, two hundred dollars, that's a lot," like, "Oh, hell no." Oh, my sweet summer child loot boxes and gotcha games if somebody mentions a whale usually at a minimum <laughs> no, no bismarck bismarck Ooh. you're fine this is not where you want to be <laughs> but it is a factor that like I- i've seen some people say you're not a whale until you spend your first 500 dollars minimum god damn it Did you spend it on freaking gotcha again, Bismarck? <laughs> okay, he is a whale. Yeah, he's he's that kind of whale. So yes, um, most of the time, whenever somebody mentions a whale, you're usually seeing somebody spend roughly one k. On... Which, no, please, please don't. But that's also, I, I'm sorry, but at that point, at, at that point, we're no longer talking about people who are casually playing a game. We are talking about people with a severe gambling addiction to the game. Yeah. So, and that's the thing is that there are people out there that they are making roughly six digit income a year and they're whales. It's like, okay, for their income, yeah, I could see them. But there's people out there uh, technically on essentially minimum wage spending 2000 which is impressive to me because I don't even uh, because I don't even clear two thousand dollars a month and I'm above minimum wage. Uh, I'm slightly above minimum wage, but yeah, I, I'm like, ew, ew. I am uh. wage. 
So, I mean, even if I wasn't, even if I was clearing 2K, hmm. if I was slightly clearing 2K, I couldn't afford to spend 2K on Gotcha. Are you kidding? No. Yeah, no. So, you could only spend 500. Uh, I'd rather not spend five dollar. So yeah, I'll just simply pass. So, uh, getting into the ne uh, the thing that basically caused us to start rebelling a lot is Star Wars Battlefront Two. Yep. Because this was the first mainstream. And uh, now, in fairness, and this is this is a position I don't take often, but in fairness, oh dear, what we were extremely pissed about in the game that could be bought with these was content that was already in the game if you wanted to devote literally hundreds of hours of grinding. And I mean grinding to get. Mm -hmm. It was possible. It was not impossible. It was doable. But it was not good and it was not fun. And the fact that they said, oh, yeah, no, this isn't going to be fun to you for you to grind out. Here, let's just make it so you can buy it. So, uh, to explain a few things, uh, to uh, to explain it, Star Wars Battlefront 2, uh, let's not mention the loot box just yet and what it dealt with, but the factor was that, A, they had technically set up the mechanics so that you could pay real-world money to get loot boxes, but you could also just play the game in an in-game currency that could buy the loot boxes as well. The problem was that the amount of earnings that you got from playing the game normally were inconsequential as compared to uh, just using real-world money. Mm. Now, some people were like, oh, that, that doesn't sound too bad. That sounds like other mechanics that you've mentioned before. Here's where it got a little bit much more... Uh, divisive is the factor that they had locked characters, weapons, and actual stuff that makes the game that actually changes how people could play the game uh, behind loot boxes. We're talking locking Luke Skywalker or Darth Vader behind a loot box. Mm hmm. And one other thing that makes a difference between this and other examples that we've talked about or may talk about after this mm -hmm. is that the currency for the loot boxes, the ability to earn it yourself, was not just locked behind, uh, you know, hours and hours and hours and mindless hours and oh my god hours of grinding, but from what I understand, was locked behind PVE grinding. It it was a mix of both PvE and PvP. Uh, okay. See, that I did not know. Okay. Um, the problem is that the rewards for PvE were greater than PvP. Mm -hmm. the so only... it was faster to do so through PvE. But the problem was that the amount you still earned either way was inconsequential. Correct. Um, and by... Uh, going back to the fact that certain things like weapons and characters were locked behind the loot box turned what was normally just, oh, hey, this is just cosmetics and fun stuff that you can apply to what is now uh, what is known as pay to win. Yep. And the reason why Star Wars Battlefront 2 
got a lot of flack for it was because this was a triple a title doing it yep if people wonder why i why it was so backlashed and not other pay to win games most pay to win games at the time were all mobile gotcha games or at the very least free to play free uh, basically you didn't pay sixty dollars because another example that came to mind as we were talking about this is uh, Marvel Heroes, which was a free-to-play game mm-hmm. where you got one hero automatically for free, and every other hero in the game you could take to level 10. But if you want to take them past that, well, guess you're unlocking the character. But again, you could earn a type of currency through gameplay, through regular gameplay, the same gameplay you're doing anyways, admittedly at a very slow rate in order to unlock them. So you did have an option. And again, the cosmetic, not really, because it did. they had completely different power sets and what have you. Everybody wanted to play one of the bigger names. Nobody wanted to play. I don't even remember who they started you with, but it was like nobody actually wanted to play that character. Yeah. Everyone wanted to unlock Deadpool. Everyone wanted to unlock um, Scarlet Witch. And to top it off, uh, EA introduced something that, as far as I know, not a lot of other gotcha games ever really did. Because um, I, I didn't know about it until, like, when it went underway was the fact that they introduced what they called star cards, which actually boost, uh, like, which you could use to, uh, as a, you pay it and then would boost the character class or ca- uh, that you have. Uh, or actually, let me read up on it just to make sure. Okay, I'm saying it wrong. The star cards would boost uh, the chance of getting specific character classes to the tier levels to hire. Uh, so you'd basically, you could pay real world and you could only get these star cards by actually paying real money. So essentially, you pay money to get not only boxes, but to get increased chance cards to uh, to use on those loot boxes to get the character that you were hoping to get, which changes the whole mechanic of a loot box in the factor that, A, you now have ways of getting the character that you want, but you still had to pay real-world money for it. Mm-hmm. Um... Now, because of the whole backlash behind it, uh, EA did reevaluate and redo stuff to where literally uh, characters were no longer uh, locked behind loot boxes. They were just locked behind severely truncated um, in-game currency. Or you could basically pay a, uh, pay a little bit of money to just unlock them directly instead so something to the equivalent of what we have now is a season pass uh yes uh, the season pass um and when i mean they truncated the in-game currency they kept the in-game currency the same but they reduced the in-game costs for all the quotations buying things because i think the in-game cost for getting like vader was 200,000 credits mm-hmm. and then they dropped it down to like 20,000 credits which made it a lot more easier to get him. Oh yeah, very much so. 
you still had to do a little bit of work, but it wasn't like, oh, hey, you're going to spend the next two months grinding. It was going to be like, oh, hey, this is something you can work, uh, earn in about two weeks. Which, it took something that was thousands of hours and brought it down to hundreds of hours. Which made it a lot more approachable. Um, it still impacted the game because A, uh, not only did EA lose 8% of its stock because of this whole shebangle, uh, they didn't actually meet their sales mark, which they were expecting to send sell 10, uh, 10 million units by 10%, which means they only sell 9 million units. Mm. Which, usually these estimated marks are usually about, like, the amount of costs plus maybe 20 to 30% more. Um, but the damage had been done, and this actually brought into light the whole concept of loot boxes potentially being uh, put under the gambling laws of various countries. Um, and as such, some companies have actually outright stated that, yes, loot boxes are gambling. Whereas others, here in the United States, they are, at the current, not considered gambling because technically since you can't resell what you earned, you uh, they have no monetary value and thus aren't considered gambling. That's uh, the best way I could put it is ouch honestly it becomes a weird yes to no at that point because yeah. i mean yeah at this you can't resell it um the reason why you have things like uh powerball scratchers etc is because they have a potential monetary value there's no guarantee of monetary return but there's a potential for monetary return yeah that's that though uh anytime you are putting real world currency into a system with a chance for something whether it have a monetary value or otherwise assign or whether it have a real assigned monetary value i should say or otherwise at that point you're 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 treading awfully close to gambling if not outright uh jumping in head first yeah, and that's the thing is that um, some of the stuff that's been coming uh, it because of this, loot boxes are becoming a hot topic of do you try and include something in the game to return your costs like a loot box, or do you try and do other uh, try it in true methods like DLC? Most companies have decided that loot boxes are too controversial at this time to try and implement them without out and out stating hey this is for cosmetic only like how uh, Fortnite did it which you can earn everything in, uh, from the season pass either by paying the V-Bucks yeah V-Bucks or just playing the game through the season 
Um, some countries have implemented rules of seeing the percentages of getting said items. Uh, so that uh, one of the big proponents of this is actually weirdly China, of all things. China. 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 So that any type of loot box or gotcha has to publish the draw probability of the items. So since this is percentages, this is dealing a little, uh, it's a little bit similar to the whole gambler's mechanic, but that means that out of any draws, yeah, like let's say if we draw 100, there is a point, uh, going back to my weird example, a 0.6% chance of drawing something. This is a little different than the gambler's thing because it's not, oh, if I do 100 draws, I'm going to get it. It's the fact that, like, hey, here's the actual percentile chances of it happening. Well, but again, that's, that's, that's where the gambler's fallacy comes in at, is yeah. that if you have a 0.6% chance, you're going to have the people who sit there and math it out and say, well, if I have a 0.6% chance, then in a little more than 150 uh, attempts, I will get it. Yeah. So, uh, as such, some companies, uh, it, it's one of those things that the whole factor of gotcha games and various things of the draw chances of getting happening, um, it cuts back on the whole con uh, cuts back on some people's idea of the gambler's fallacy because if you can see percentiles that means that like if you see a number that is super low the 0.6 that immediately tells me that i have a very extreme low chance of getting what i uh, what i want from this doesn't mean i can't get it it just means that from my own perspective when i see something in a percentile I feel a little bit more like, okay, I now understand the actual pro uh, properties of this and can appropriately turn my face away. Uh, other people, not so much. Because it just like gives them a hard number of, oh, hey, this is the actual chance. And of course, leading back to the gambler's fallacy. Now, um, because of this, we got season passes, which is, yes, it's still you're paying real world money for whatever's coming out this season for that game, but it's a lot more straight up. Here's everything that comes out this season up front. Yes, it's still some of them can be expensive because I think Fortnite's season pass is still like a hundred dollars. I'm going to double check myself on that. Season pass cost. Oh, I was dead wrong. It's about $10. <laughs> A season pass is roughly about $10. Sometimes, no. Well, this is just based off of Fortnite. I swear I've seen somebody said like a season pass is like a hundred dollars somewhere. And I'm like, that's 
That's too much. So some people are more likely to go like, I'm willing to put down $10 for the season pass rather than spending $100 to possibly get everything from the loot boxes. Um, but A, the, the loot box was designed as a way of making money for a company. Um, cause considering like the whole factor of loot boxes came from essentially the whole like booster packs or the old style, uh, Gashapon machines. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, shows that this is much older than video gaming. It's just the fact that with video games, we're implementing it in an interesting, much more forward fashion. Because uh, with old uh, trading or collectible card games, as they're now called, usually you have a starter pack and then, of course, the booster packs. But uh, getting back to the major topic, which is uh, since all of these were kind of developed in a way of allowing companies to recoup their costs after a game has come out, um, this was basically because, like, keeping a game at $60 is at least if we're accounting for inflation, it's insane because technically games that uh, back in the day that cost 60, they were mostly whole games. Mm -hmm. And so like whatever you sold, you recouped your costs. Nowadays, let's say, uh, let's bring in a multi uh, an online multiplayer game like Overwatch. I, I hate, I bring them up to, uh, Overwatch, Call of Duty, Star Wars Battlefront 2. Uh, I'm mentioning them because... Uh, with games like those, the multiplayer servers are now a continual maintenance that they have to account for. Mm -hmm. AKA live service. Live service. And the factor is that... Uh, the, uh, like they have to somehow earn money either based off of other games that they sell or make a way so that they get uh, money from a game that they're continue uh, that they have the servers up and running for so the whole factor behind loot boxes DLC and uh, season passes or battle passes or whatever the hell you want to call them um, the reason why they were in said uh, in such games was the fact that a they were trying to make sure that not only did they recouped the development costs uh, and the various other costs, but also the maintenance costs for keeping those servers up and running. Because the games out there that you didn't pay uh, that had online services, I'm looking at you, Demon Souls. Um, where you bought the game, 
you could uh, they had online ver uh, online play, but not necessarily any way to uh, like once the game was bought, no way of earning more money after that. Server costs. Uh, some companies out and out either shut down the service two or three years after, or uh, made other games that they made more profit on to keep up the server longer. Like the yearly sports games. Uh, I have a problem with those, and that's not because no! of... Oh, hey, FIFA's mentioned on here in Lootbox 2. Of Jesus. course it does. <laughs> FIFA's a big one. Uh, is the fact that those yearly sports games are usually priced much lower than you'd expect, but when you look at the, in, uh, the stuff underneath them, dear lord, they're... They just need somebody to go in, maybe update a thing or two, and do some reskinning, and that's it. So they do minimal amount of work on the game. Because, like, everybody talks about, like, oh, hey, FIFA 2020, uh, NBA 2K20, oh, God. That's a horrible hot mess is that mechanic uh, from a development side of things that uh i have to mention the story and it deals with madden 20 uh, the madden series mm -hmm. is the factor that i know somebody who actually worked on the madden series when he was briefly at ea and he said there was still code from the 90s in it mm-hmm we're talking code that absolutely had no logical, technological, or reasonable possibility of ever being used in a... I think this was still back in the P, uh, PS3 era. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it was PS3. Had no reason to be in that era. Because it would be absolutely... It wouldn't work. But because they just kind of updated the engine just a little bit the whole in you know, like the whole concept of trying to re uh, recreate a sports game from ground up is an anathema to companies like EA because that means that they need to bring on a full team mm -hmm. rather than having somebody squeak in and then maybe update the engine a little bit to work because that means that digs into their co their their costs of getting the games out and even now uh sports games are now including stuff like loot boxes and season passes and i'm like oh god Um, and probably one of the reasons why, uh, physical games costs, and this will probably affect digital game, uh, digital costing as well, is the fact that, A, games, most companies, yes, they provide us a product, but we also need to, if you want to support them, you have to pay them. And... Uh, that's the factor is that 
A, these are people that are literally working a job, so they need to be paid and things like that. But when the whole business model of gaming is still based off of old data, they have to come up with ways of making money. Um, considering that, like, let's let's try and bring in something that's non-gaming related that a has kept up with market value that if people if we tried to apply gaming logic to pricing people would go insane and we're not talking gamers we're talking like the normal people going batshit insane about costs so let's talk about something that everybody has to deal with groceries Okay, I feel like we've switched topics a little suddenly, but okay. I'm Let's just continue. I'm, I'm just bringing up groceries is the factor that to explain um, the cost of groceries over the years has we've definitely seen some uh, seen inflation affect it, and let's say that let's say back in 2020 uh yeah not 2020 back in 2010 that a cost of let's say a head of lettuce was about a buck uh like one dollar exactly okay but now in 2020 it's now about like a dollar thirty dollar forty maybe even two dollars depending on what type of lettuce and I go like, well, why isn't the lettuce still a dollar? It there's still it, it's still the same amount. It's still produced the same. Why is it now two dollars? And someone goes like, well, there's not enough, uh, there aren't farmers making more lettuce for you, uh, and so that we have to pay those farmers more in order for them to produce the lettuce, and then we have to do the transport costs, and then da 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 da. And I go like, well, why don't we just hire more farmers to do it? Well, if you hired more farmers, that means that technically, yeah, you get more product, but would a lot of people want to buy a head of lettuce? It's supply and demand. Mm. Um, and so if we change things around a little bit, is that... Uh, Instead of a head of lettuce, we decided to put it as a game, a video game. And price cost is $60. And this was enough to, quotations, pay the farmers, or in this case, the publishers and developers and all that, back in, 2010, uh, in 2005. And we're talking about, like, let's say the amount of people working on a game back in 2005 was maybe a group of 10 people to make a game. Okay. And budget-wise, maybe, maybe $1 million. Actually, no. What would be a budget for a game in 2005? Well, let's see.
Uh, what was the big hit of 2005? Uh, Something that actually did well and was a AAA title. Uh, Resident Evil 4, got Call of Duty 2. Let's do Resident Evil 4. Okay. Or how about Half-Life 2? Oh, wait. God what? of War. I think God of War came out in 2005. Ah, here we go. Here we go. Uh, yeah, I see Half-Life 2 is 2004. Well, we said 2005, but okay. Yeah, let's take Half-Life 2. 2004. Um, let's see. I'm just trying to make it. Uh, development cost for Half-Life 2 was $40 million. Um, and total cost forty million dollars. If this was a game developed nowadays, it'd be fifty-four million dollars to develop. Okay, fair. So, um, let, let's equate that. Uh, so, let, let's kind of try and equate that back to our head of lettuce. Essentially, let's say that that one dollar head of lettuce require uh people will buy lettuce no word uh, no two ifs ands or buts about it um and it takes roughly about the farmer in this case valve roughly about maybe 40 cents of their time and effort to go into that head of lettuce for you yes they're making 60 cents back but they uh they have a farm that roughly produces, mm, let's say, uh, it like quite uh, uh, let's say that in order to make sure that the lettuce is kept upkeep, uh, the upkeep cost and time effort would eh, like it costs them to actually produce the lettuce forty cents, but the upkeep of the farm uh, maybe. Let's tack on twenty, uh, roughly twenty cents per lettuce, so that's now sixty. And then farm hands that they may have to hire, let's put on another five cents per head of lettuce, so sixty-five cents. And yeah, we're yeah, getting the numbers there, but. Uh, so essentially, uh, and then the cut that the, gro uh, the grocer takes, let's say they take 15 cents off. And so all the profit that they get is maybe about 10 cents per head of lettuce. And, oh, great. I've, my mind is basically blanked out and I'm stupid about that. So, uh, the farmer goes like, oh, hey, can you start selling these heads of, uh, starts asking, like, in, in order to make sure that he stays afloat, uh, can you start selling these heads of lettuce a little bit higher, like maybe a dollar twenty or a dollar ten? Yeah. And technically, I mean, it, it, I see, I see the analogy you're trying to put up there, uh -huh. but technically it would work from the other direction. Like, and I apologize, I did lose... Okay. The number that you had originally said. So 
I'm going to make up my own numbers and I apologize. Mm-hmm. Uh, but let's say that right now the farmer is getting 80 cents per head of lettuce from, uh, from the entire equation. Yeah. So let's say at the end of the day, the, the farmer says, okay, well, 80 cents is just not going to cut it because cost of inflation, everything costs more for me. So I need more money to stay afloat. So they go to the store and they say, okay, we want to re- I want to renegotiate. I want to now sell these to you for 90 cents per head of lettuce. The store then has to turn around and either eat that, which with the number, I did remember the 10 cents you said, mm-hmm. would elim- end up eliminating their uh, margin altogether, or they have to pass on that increase to the consumer. So they pass on that increase to the consumer. They tell the farmer, okay, sure, we'll pay 90 cents. And now we're going to go back to the uh, consumer and say we're going to charge a buck fifty for this set of lettuce. Yeah. And that, and so essentially for us, a we uh, like a buck fifty for a head of lettuce is. It's a head of lettuce. You're going to eat it. So seeing an increase of cost is like. Eh. Well, oh, the other. But go ahead. The other challenge there is that again, when we're looking at that end figure of a buck fifty. Uh, as the comparison to the end figure is 70 bucks. But we also have to consider in the case of a head of lettuce or in the case of getting a physical disc for your PS5, mm-hmm. we're also talking about not not necessarily just the farmer. We're also talking about the truck that takes that to the warehouse, the warehouse, the truck that takes it from the warehouse to the grocery store. We're also, uh, each of those elements is also increasing in cost, the transportation cost goes up as gas prices do as wage requirements do the warehouse goes up as the cost of hiring its employees and its overhead goes up yeah uh, the cost of the stores overhead goes up so they need to increase it a little bit to make theirs so in reality it's not even that the farmer is getting a full 10 cents out of it the farmer's getting like four cents of that equation yeah uh basically to explain um with uh the whole farmer analogy is distribution and supply and demand. Mm-hmm. And the factor is that t- uh, in video games, the because uh, like with a grocer, basically there's three things you have to probably deal with: the farmer, distribution, and the grocer. Basically, mm-hmm. three people uh, like three levels that you have to deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, with video games, you have to deal with probably five or more situations, because mm-hmm. a there is uh, there is the developer, mm-hmm. the publisher, mm-hmm. the distributor, mm-hmm. the uh, the publisher. Uh, the uh, this one may be put under the publisher side of things, but the printer. A.K.A. the people that make the physical copies of the games. Yeah, I would usually put that under publisher, but yeah, that does need to be called out. Yeah. Um, and then retail. Retail. Um, sometimes people also put out as an uh, another cost is the advertisement. Yeah, which that's also shifted, and that could be its own entire episode, but... Yeah. Uh, where where we go into bought paid media versus shared uh, versus earned media and so forth and so on. Um, 
And then probably the last thing is governmental... Uh, yeah, governmental fa uh, facilities slash branches that may require stand uh, may require because some co uh, some countries like Australia, <laughs> you have to get your game rated in order for it to be released in Australia. Australia, Australia, don't we love you? Well, and in fairness, if you're a AAA uh, title. You have to get your if you're a AAA title in the U.S. You have to get your game rated to be released, because most uh, most retailers like Walmart or Target mm -hmm. will not put your game on the shelf unless it's been rated by the ESRB. Yes, sir. And yet I still see like that shelf of bejeweled and. Hundreds of games on one disc still on their shelf, and they, it has no ESRP rating on it. Well, but that's the difference, and that's the uh, <laughs> as hypocritic as uh, as hypocritical as it sounds. That's the the difference. There is that if you are a triple A title, um, not not people aren't going to be able to look at it and say, okay, well, this is for sure mature. This is for sure teen. Yeah. Uh, this is for sure AO. Well, I mean, that's not going to be the case anyways, but still. Hmm. Uh, we had a whole discussion about that previously. Uh, yeah. Feel free to go back a few episodes for that one. Uh, but if you have a, if you have the 583 games in one, we, you have a lot of games like Solitaire, Spider Solitaire, Pyramid Solitaire, Oh My God, More Solitaire, Clock Solitaire, Oh my God! Stop me! There's more solitaire. Pagel. Uh, you have, you have free cell, which is another solitaire. Um, you have the bejeweled. You have all these little puzzle games and card games. Uh, you have, I don't know, backgammon maybe. You've got hearts and spades for online play. Or Texas poker. Computer. Yep, you got uh, different multiple variations of poker. Mm -hmm. uh, you have all kinds of games that they're they have been around for so long they predate some of those games predate us combined yeah and some of them uh, you know uh, organ trail oh well <laughs> <laughs> yeah you, you gotcha yeah you gotcha you gotcha that's a staple that's 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 going back yep. no that's on the kids disc organ oh. trail uh, where in the world is Carmen San Diego? Uh, Number Muncher and Math Blaster. Oh yep. God, Math Blaster. That's 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 all on the kids' disc. But yeah, no, same concept. Those are all games that the first one, the first set is all games that anyone who has ever heard of game, not even video games, who has ever heard of the word game, can look at the box and go, oh, that's E for everyone. Yeah. You don't need a you don't need to sit in a room with 20 other adults and debate, okay, what should we rate this? There's nothing graphic, there's no violence, there's no well, I mean, unless it's that type of box in which case well that's another story. There's no sexual content. Um, there's nothing really to give it a rating higher than E. Maybe maybe E10 because the poker game doesn't mm. actually have gambling, but ooh, it's got, you know, it's got ranked hands. It simulates gambling. That's not actually gambling. At that point, that's not gambling. That's not what we were yeah. talking about earlier. 
Um, but that's all stuff that's E. The game, the game we were literally just talking about as the kids' disc. That's the stuff that we collectively played on really old computers back in the day. That's the kind of stuff that would be. Okay, I, if it's not E, uh, it might even be earlier. It might even some of that might be EC. Yeah, and like, that's, that's the stuff that goes. That, that that's the stuff that you literally look at this and you go, "I'm over the age of ten. No, thank you." So, uh, and now we probably should bring in, because that's just physical sales. Mm -hmm. And I know somebody's probably going to pop in going like, but what about digital sales? Well, we're glad you asked, hypothetical viewer, and thank you for listening. Yes. Um, now, with digital sales, it's a little different but, uh, because, A, we can truncate the whole physical sales by a lot of people. A, publisher. Developer. Uh, well, best way. Technically, you can't cut the publisher out of the out of the equation, but you can cut the printer. Uh, essentially, the best way I could put it is, it is going to be that these are people that will only be involved in the digital sales. Is well, the publisher is still involved in digital sales. Yeah, I was going to say, literally, it's going to be developer, publisher, and distributor. Retail. Yeah, which in this case is steam or what have you steam um some people will still say but what about public uh, but what about uh advertising costs like uh... well and technically here's the problem so advertising costs are not a one-to-one -one. Yeah. advertising costs whether no matter which way you slice the equation advertising costs are an overall cost of the entire game just yeah. like how development costs through the developer are an overall cost of the entire game. They're not something that are built into directly the price of an individual copy, but rather if we sell, we expect to sell 10 million copies at $70 a copy now. So we expect to recoup 700 million. So our budget is to stay for everything involved including overhead, including, 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 is to say under 400 million so that we have a profit margin for our shareholders. And the one thing I can say about digital distribution is that you can even truncate that uh, even farther down because you now can do self-publishing. Mm -hmm. So you basically can just do developer slash publisher distributor, mm -hmm. which means that that brings down all over uh, all uh, all overhead costs down to basically something a lot more manageable which is why indie games are so inexpensive relatively because you can get a decently well-developed indie game i mean i'm looking at you undertale <laughs> uh, for a very reasonable price tag because you have such a low overhead yeah um and because of that, uh, a lot of company, uh, a lot of indie developers are going self-publishing and going just digital distribution only, uh, because the factor that a costs alone, uh, they get a lot more out of it than of AAA titles, 
because a you actually earn a lot more money from digital uh, digital distribution mm-hmm. uh, and so people are going like but what about used games oh god you had to bring up that one you weird weird listener you well, technically, you're the one who brought it up. The hypothetical—I can't hear the hypothetical, the hypothetical voice any more than you can. Yeah, but to explain uh, with used games, because we're actually over about right now. Yeah, it happens. It happens. Is the factor that most game companies and publishers only care about new games. Mm-hmm. Used games are to put it bluntly, a 100% pure cost by whoever sells the used game, whether that's individual or a company. GameStop. I mean, well, what am I talking about? Well, let's 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 address the uh, the elephant in the room. Let's let's say that we did take in a thousand dollars worth of games and got a twenty dollar gift card. So obviously, (laughs) we're talking about GameStop. Yeah. Uh, so let's take that hypothetical thousand dollars worth of games, which we'll say that because that's kind of an awkward number, let's say twelve hundred, because we're talking sixty dollar games. Hmm. So we're talking at this point twenty games. We're talking of those twenty games, they were they were original retail for sixty bucks. We'll say that based the average the average value they're worth now that GameStop's able to resell them for is thirty bucks. Hmm. So GameStop, okay, so if they're willing to sell them for 30 bucks and it's 20 games, they're realistically probably going to give us 100 bucks. Yeah. As long as it's trade-in value. Which is roughly putting it as each game that, they're giving, uh, that we're getting is 5 bucks. Yeah. So of the $30 that they're going to make for selling this game again, $5 of that is going to us as the original owner that is their overhead on the game now they have of course the actual overhead of employees and uh, power and everything else those are just regular cost of doing business overhead mm-hmm. but for the individual game itself it is $30 resale $5 paid to acquire it they're walking away with $25 in profit on that individual game yeah uh, of that twenty-five dollars, uh, let's say one of those games is Final Fantasy Fifteen. I don't know why that's on the list, but it is. Hmm. So let's say they, I, I took my copy of Final Fantasy Fifteen. Not possible; it's a digital copy, but still hypothetical. I took my copy of Final Fantasy Fifteen into GameStop. They gave me five dollars in in-store credit for it, and put a thirty-dollar sticker on it and put it on the shelf. Someone comes in 10 minutes later and says, hey, I've been meaning to play that and picks it up off the shelf and buys it. That $25 in profit of that zero, zero dollars and zero cents is going to Square Enix because it is not a new game. Yep. It was not purchased from Squeenix. Now, some people uh, like to be honest. Personally, I don't necessarily care about the costs about like how GameStop runs because as of right now, it is dying. 
Um, which means we're probably going to get mom and pop game stores back. Yay! Uh, May. May. That's a topic for another day. N- another topic. <laughs> but the reason why I'm a little pissed about GameStop is this is more on a developer side slash publisher side side of mm-hmm. things is that the only infographics to see if somebody is int- if there is interest in a game is only based off of digital sales and new game sales correct so let's say that for whatever reason um a game gets released and oh hey we we see a decent amount of uh players that buy the game play it to completion let's say about maybe eh, let's put it about five million people bought the game that's a decent number yeah decent number um i'm not gonna mention pricing but let's say about a good chunk of them about three million of those people decide to uh, sell their copy back to gamestop mm-hmm. yeah because they beat it they beat it they're done don't need to worry about it i don't care um and so though that three million copies gets back into the wild and let's say it drops price down to forty dollars as compared mm-hmm. to sixty dollars for a brand new copy mm-hmm. somebody let's say goes like oh hey we're really interested in this but i wasn't willing to pay sixty dollars for the game mm-hmm. and so let's say about a hundred and uh 1.5 million buy those used copies okay um and so the that 1.5 million they decided like oh hey i'd love to yeah i'd like more in this game so they actually keep their copy of the game mm-hmm. rather than resell it because there are and that's what that 2 million did is that they bought the game and either didn't play it or they kept the game because they absolutely loved it and would continue to play it. And that's the thing is that let's say this is the first game in a brand new IP. The problem is that based off of physical sales alone, 5 million people, it's a good number, but it's not, oh, hey, people are really interested in this game. It's, oh, hey, uh, we made our money back and we're not seeing a large player base anymore yeah this ip is no go no good so they decide go like we're not going to develop any more for this ip because it doesn't show any form of interest Mm -hmm. and And that that actually exposes two different issues uh sorry i'll let you finish though well, I was about to say that a because of this is that a if that brand new, uh, if they had taken the statistics of the used game sales into it, they may have found that there was a lot more interest in their game that they could develop for and put more games out there, which would mean more revenue, mm-hmm. or at least like oh hey putting some more money into it to put out stuff like DLC or updates to the game. Yeah. I think that was probably one of the issues you wanted to bring up. Yeah, absolutely. Because, and essentially because not only are they not seeing that extra 1.5 million units moving because they're used units, 
but then we could even be as honestly GameStop's system is built around churn it, churn it, churn it. So in reality, the way they're designed, the real sales are going to be something like 1.5 million at $40, 1 million at $30, and most of the other half million at $25. You're going to actually see that full 3 million churn. And I think Will has something to say about this too. No, I don't. Okay. Okay. And and so like that that's one thing is that a um because of the factor that the used game sales aren't counted in statistics is because of the factor that well GameStop literally out in south states that no one cares about it mm-hmm. i hate to say it but i actually know a few people that out and out state we would have loved to see some of those used sales uh sales statistics oh yeah 100 percent because that is that that leads into stuff like sleeper hits mm-hmm. games that initially didn't come uh, that came out but absolutely did poorly but when you then go into the used game sales you start to see like things picking up weirdly where it's like that's a lot more sales about the game itself yeah the games that essentially become the cult classics like one example that I know we're both thinking of right now being Mother 2, a.k.a. Earthbound. God, yes. Because that game, in initial sales, did not do so great in the U.S., which is why we never got Mother 3. But in residual, or not residual, but in used sales, has passed hands so many times that I I think last time I saw the numbers... Used sales was like four to five times what new sales was. Well, let me go do a typical eBay search, and let's do a search for Earthbound. Okay. Uh, While you're doing that, the other thing I wanted to bring up, and this is the other piece of data that the developers and the publishers Mm -hmm. don't realize that they need, and they are sorely penalized for not having, which is the full supply and demand curves. Yeah. Because, I mean, as we saw from that example, we have a point where the sixty-dollar uh, cost intersects uh, intersects at five million uh, at a demand of five million. Okay. And but as soon as we as soon as we dropped it to forty, that uh, the intersect point changed from being five million to being six point five million. Yes. So that's another one and a half million units in that example that, let's say, Square Enix had no idea that they didn't know about. Mm-hmm. And I've gotten uh, the price ranges anywhere from like forty nine ninety nine, and it doesn't say anything about how many hands it's changed. Mm-hmm. It's a it states brand new, but I doubt that. Or it could be a reprint copy. That's that's a different topic. That's could... much more likely, and that's another story altogether. Yeah. Uh, ranging upwards to about six hundred for Earth. <laughs> that six hundred one is both authentic box ma- and manual. Wait, no game. What the hell? That's box and manual only. Are you kidding me? Uh, and I that's saw. Hilarious. Okay, this one is a little bit more sensible. Is the fact that this is both box guide and extras which include 
the uh, scent stickers, I think. And the Japanese, uh, the Japanese Mother One and Two guide. So I I ran the numbers because that's that's what I do. Hmm. I was writing them down this time. Uh, so in fairness, and this is one of those challenges of of the purpose of uh, supply and demand curve uh, graphing, is that in the circumstances we said a moment ago, where you have five million interested at sixty bucks. You have 6.5 million interested at 40 bucks. If the initial release had been 40, then yes, they would have actually taken a hit of, I, if I'm reading this right, about $4 million or $40 million rather, uh, uh, versus what they got at 5 million at 60. But seeing the fact that there is that interest, they could have then done a second run print at the $40 watermark which could have given them some of that additional profit. Yeah. And that's something that we do see, or at least used to see uh, more often as well. And we see also in the digital distribution um, where a game comes out at 60 and as it, as interest uh, tapers off, they will drop the price to try and entice additional sales from the, mm, not really the, for that price tag uh, crowd yeah and that's probably one of the things that i know much uh, smaller game companies are much more interested in because of a scene uh, like if they do if those smaller companies do physical copies um seeing the resale numbers actually would be a morale boost at least mm -hmm. yeah absolutely um, versus the large uh, large companies like EA, where it's like, oh, hey, we have like five different pots that we have that we can pull from. So we don't necessarily need, uh, we can focus on, uh, like we have a pot specifically for making money, looking at you, sports ball games. Mm-hmm. Uh, that they use some of the revenue from that to pour into some of the other games that they have. But EA tends to mostly focus on the big splashes if they do a new IP. If they don't, they tend to go like, well, let's revive an old IP that was pretty, pretty good. But they don't do that often anymore, actually. They're just sticking with the stock standard IPs that they know and use, which is Battlefield, uh, Call of Duty, and Sports Bowl. Mm -hmm. um, whereas other game companies like Square, they're willing to invest in new IPs. Because, uh, like, uh, some of the games that they uh, that I liked was stuff like I Am Setsuna, which mm -hmm. it didn't do too bad, but it wasn't a big splash. But uh, Square Enix said, hey, it did a decent enough job that they actually was willing uh, were willing to work with the studio again to make um, Lost Sphere and something Oni. 
I forgot the the name of their current one. That they're willing to work with the studio again for new IPs or new stuff that they're willing to do. Um. And that and that's the thing is that uh, since Steam. Digital distribution is a lot easier to handle because a statistics both on refund and people buying are straight up, oh, one to one. You get a much more straightforward answer on things because if somebody asks for a refund, you don't get that money. By the way, the answer you were looking for was Oninaki. Oninaki, okay. Thank you. And th and that's the thing is that uh, I, I, I'm not sure how... Uh, and the reason why the games have been stuck at $60 for so long is uh, to get to the heart of the matter, really just... Oh, hey, that's what I paid for a game years ago. Why should I pay more for a game now? And I hate to say it, but I kind of want to pay more for a game now. Or uh, because, A, I, I kind of essentially put it as vote with my wallet. Mm-hmm. Well, and I mean, kind of the, I, I guess my final take on the topic mm -hmm. is, I mean, at the end of the day, like we said earlier, the, the cost of doing business, the cost of paying A, B, C, D, and E is going to continue to increase. If there was ways to cut the cost, okay, sure, but not at the quality, not the cost of the quality of the game. And like you just said, if the game goes up to $70, I mean, maybe that changes how my I look at my entertainment budget. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, for a game that's worth it, I'm willing to take I'm willing to take that on the chin. I just remembered another method that Japan uses for recovering costs that we've tried here in the states, but it failed. Mm -hmm. The collectors and uh, special edition versions of games. I don't know that I would agree that we failed on that. And honestly, I feel like uh, Collectors and Special Edition is kind of an episode into and of its own. Okay. I just mentioned it because of the fact that uh, Japan tends to have like three or four version versions of a game. Mm -hmm. Whereas we in the States, it's like, oh, you either get stock standard or collector's. <laughs> I'm just mentioning it because it is another method that some companies have used to try and recoup costs. Yeah. Um, it, it, since it does sound like that may be much more of a episode by itself, that's probably going to be the the minimum, uh, the least I'm going to mention at this time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, my personal take on this is that if I see the PS5 and the Xbox Series X and their games are $70. Yeah, I know it's going to be like, uh, I'm not going to be buying as many games, or at least as many games, uh, brand spanking new games. I may wait until price drops. Um, but I still respect the fact that that would be a 
in order for that to happen, it happen it has to happen across the board. Yeah, because from my perspective, both as a gamer and as somebody that has looked into the industry, there does need to be something in uh, that handles inflation. And I know some uh, like some people go like, well, why not just go back to the older days when you had smaller groups doing the development? Uh, Good luck on trying to get them to do that. Yeah, because we've gotten to these huge freaking masterpieces that mm. require having a uh, having like a dedicated composer with a twenty piece orchestra and having a dedicated twenty to thirty person VR. Uh, a motion capture team and... and and to explain like if you went back to the quotations smaller teams you may not be uh, you may not get it as big polish and I'll be honest I don't like the super hyper realistic game looks I actually like stylized games because they tend to withstand uh, with the test of time better that's a different topic entire in and of itself. Yeah. But the other thing that you trade with by having a much uh, much larger team is time. Time is a big thing. Mm -hmm. Because let, let's bring in Final Fantasy Seven R. Remake. How long do you think it took them to develop that game? It was close to a decade, wasn't it? Uh, as far as I know, let's let's take a close look. Um, I'm gonna see if they actually mentioned when it started proper development, proper development, not when they thought of it. Um, the recent one seems to have been started roughly around. Huh. The game uh, may have been started roughly around 2013. So, and that's that's based on the current version, yeah. not the original original remake. Yes, because yeah, there there so. were there were topics of maybe doing it on the PS2 and the PS3. Mm -hmm. Um, those ones kind of failed through because of the factor that a various legalities the proper full production and when i mean full production is when they actually started doing like getting every all those teams up and running was back in 2015 but knowing square enix there was probably a one to two year period there of prototypes and concepts that was tossed to the executives of course which is why i put it about maybe 2013 is when they started to try and work on it but uh, if we're going on full production it's about five years five years mm -hmm. that they did this uh, that it took them to get it to what we got um and let me see if i can see how long it took them to develop the original final fantasy 7 if they mention it Uh, oh, here we go. The initial concepts started in 1994 
which is three years. Which was a... Uh, they started talking about it after the completion of six. Mm -hmm. um, and let's see... Development... So, A, since they were started back on after six, this would have started as a 2D, but when they switched... Uh, when Sony went forward, they probably had to revamp and redo stuff. Um... So, if they started talks about it in 2004, they probably started actual development about, about 2000, uh, nine, uh, nine, uh, not 2004, 94. Probably started about 95 and took them two years. Yeah, that's what I'm seeing is the development of, there, it was tabled and then resumed late 95 with the intent of going 3D. Yep. So yeah, two years. Two years. Or... So yeah, so, yeah we're seeing a jump of three times, three to four times the table. So we can't, uh, slimming down means losing, means cha uh, A, lengthening the time, which means even longer between major AAA releases or losing quality, neither of which we really want. So yeah. going backwards on that scale is not a good point, is not a good plan, no matter how you slice it. Yeah, and that's the thing is that from my perspective, I... I'm willing to pay $70 for a game because mm -hmm. that's if I'm super interested in the game, I will buy it straight up. Yep. Um, as such, I, I know for the factor that like a that five that full five years that they developed Final Fantasy VII Remake, I fully appreciate it. And uh, I got not the uh i got the deluxe edition of final fantasy 7 uh mm -hmm. remake not the collector's edition because no way in hell am i paying about 350 dollars. yeah that was just crazy and that was for basically a 150 dollar fi uh, fig, uh fig arts cloud which you can buy by yourself and i think maybe an extra hundred and no Maybe seventy dollar uh, motorcycle for him, but putting that aside is a factor that a if you want a really good game, you're either going to have to spend a lot of time, which some publishers don't like. One of these people we've mentioned a lot in this episode is EA. They tend to rush things a lot. Um, or but yeah, it goes back to the old uh, quality gradient where you have three. You have three different qualities. You have uh, fast. You have speed. You have quality, and you have cost. You can have a game that's fast and quick, but it's not going to be good. You can have a game that's fast and good, but it's not going to be cheap. Uh, or sorry, fast and cheap, but it's not going to be good. Fast and good, but it's not going to be cheap. Or good and fast, but it's not going to be. Or cheap and fast, but it's not being good. Yeah. Basically, you have to pick your battles, and if the battle is priced, then ten bucks more isn't really breaking the bank. Yeah. Um, and that's the thing that uh, uh, essentially boils down to is, yeah, we do see some games that are, there are some gems that are out there that are really good games. But when you look into some of the history of them, they took a bit of time to get to that point. 
Mm -hmm. Um, There are other games where the game was really good and uh, really uh, its quality was exceptional, but the problem is the cost of it, they had to sell a lot more units for it. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is the one thing that I actually respect Nintendo for is that they tend to uh, they tend to be upfront about a lot of things. One of which is if they're going to delay a game, they will delay a game, and they will be upfront is that a it's not meeting our standards. Mm-hmm. Uh, considering that the one game I've been looking forward to, it's it's had its teaser for three years and no news since, and I'm sitting there going like it it drives me up the wall but i fully understand the reasoning behind it yeah and if you're wondering what game it is well it should be kind of obvious to michael and will here other m no we've already had that other m2 no yes it is uh it is metroid prime 4 so uh will did you have any last thoughts on the topic no, I think we covered it enough. Yeah, I, I think we are winding down. So, um, overall, pricing, it is what it is. We can't, like, you can supposedly release a free game and it may be a hit, or you may just out and out. But overall, pricing is going to be a major component in games, at least until the whole concept of money goes away. Which at this moment, and that is definitely a different topic. That's a different topic. That's probably not a topic we ever want to touch either. I don't know. Meritocracies could be fun to talk about, but not today. No. So, essentially, like, cost for games are, yeah, it's still going to be personal preference because I know some people, like myself, who tend to wait for Steam sales, or when games drop price, stuff like that. But. Uh, overall, it's it's literally based off your own preference. You could see a game that you absolutely wanted to buy, but you look at the cost and you're like, I'm not willing to pay it that much for it. And at that point, that's your own thing. Um, personally, I'd rather pay more so that companies know that, A, I'm willing to support them so that they can continue to make games because the less companies that are making games, the more we get super companies like EA who just steamroll those small companies and then we don't get the nice little tiny niche games anymore. Pay with your wallet, people, please. Other than that, um, to get into various ways that you can actually support us at Front Row Geeks, um... So, ways that you can support us. Uh, word of mouth, please. Spread the word. All hail Lord Bismarck. And fun jazz like that. But uh, we do have Patreon. Uh, we do have uh, a Red Dot, uh, red dot store, uh, Redbubble store. Why was I saying Red Dot? Um, that's a little bit more direct. Uh, 
indirect methods are, of course, like, subscribe, uh, we, uh, podcasts via Spootfee or whichever method you're listening to this to. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do have a Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitch channels. Uh, mostly our YouTube channel is Twitch Archives. Um, and if you have a Twitch and an appropriate Amazon, uh, you can give us your free subscription if you want to, or you can just do the subscription there. Or you could just follow us just so you can keep up with us. Um, other than that, I think that's most of the ways that you can at least support us, whether it's by word of mouth, following us along the various social media stratums. Mm-hmm. Uh, any other words from you, Michael? No, that pretty much does it. I mean, again, definitely, uh, feel if you feel like it, come join us on Twitch. Friday nights we're streaming. Saturday night, sometimes we're streaming. Come hang out with us. It's great fun. Yep. Uh, Other than that, uh, thanks for joining us, and this has been Front Row Perspectives. Bye! Bye, everybody! So, So, where did the pie figure in? Oh, that was part of